Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I certainly have benefited and am very lucky to have longstanding relationships with incredibly talented people who have helped me throughout my career. And a lot of those people uh, were very instrumental in introducing me to Conan and kind of speaking to him on my behalf. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am going to introduce my guest today, which I can't even, I am so happy to have him here. So, David Kissinger, if you don't know, has held multiple positions in senior capacities in the production and development business for network and cable television over the last 22 years. He spent the past seven years as president of Conoco Productions, the production company, of course, of Conan O'Brien, which is currently uh, commencing its fourth year under an overall deal with Warner Brothers Television after its previous ownership by NBC Universal. While at Conan's company, David has has executive produced two NBC series, Andy Barker P.I., which was named by Entertainment Weekly magazine as one of the 10 most entertaining programs of 2007, and the drama Outlaw, starring Jimmy Smits, which was broadcast in the 2010-11 season. He also executive produces the cable series Eagleheart on Adult Swim. And in the 2013-14 season, he produced a sitcom called Super Fun Night, which I love, which was on ABC, uh, as well as the late-night talk show The Pete Holmes Show, which I loved as well on TBS, and Dion's Black Box, also for TBS. Prior to joining Conico, Kissinger served for six years as president of NBC Universal Television, where he oversaw all aspects of development and production for the studio before their acquisition by NBC. He served as president of Universal Television, including two years, which the studio was known as Studios USA under the ownership of Barry Diller's USA Network, Inc. During his years at Universal, Kissinger helped develop some of the most acclaimed and successful programs 
on cable and network television. Among those programs, he helped to package, sell, and launch a little show called House, which ran for eight seasons as one of the top-rated scripted shows on network television. Love that show. The U.S. version of the office, the U.S. version of the Office, of course, recipient of the 2006 Emmy for Best Comedy, Monk, which was twice awarded the Emmy for Best Actor in Comedy, and became a signature show for the USA Network. Also, Battlestar Galactica, which was named by Time Magazine as the best show on television in 2004, and branding program for the Sci-Fi Channel. During his years at Universal, Kissinger also worked closely with Wolf Films on the extension of Law and Order, including two enormously successful spin-offs, as you know, Law and Order Special Victims Unit and Law and Order Criminal Intent. Where I started to know David was where he started at Disney Television, where he was there for five years as Senior Vice President of Development for Touchstone Television. Uh, he oversaw and developed production of many successful programs, none of them mine, because none of my programs were successful, including <laughs> Ellen, Boy Meets World, and uh, Home Improvement. Prior to that, he was also a journalist writing for Rolling Stone, The New York Observer, and Esquire, and spent two years as a television correspondent for Weekly Variety. Ladies and gentlemen, a Yale grad, my guest today, who has sat through a, an hour and 27-minute cold open, please welcome David Kissinger. Thank you for having me, Barry. This is very exciting. It's very exciting for me. I, I've been telling you what a huge fan I am. This is uh, this is kind of a dream come true. For and, me. and what's scary is that you're you know you never lie. So that's that's what's that's what shocks no, it's me. It's actually disturbing to me how much time I've spent <laughs> with you in my ear as I walk my dog around my neighborhood. I, I feel like I spend more time with you than my children or my friends. That will uh, but come I back really, to, I will love that therapy. Thank you for loving the show, though. Uh, no, I mean, honestly, one of the things that I love about it is this business can be very lonely, and it's so empowering and comforting and educational to hear the stories that you draw out of people, many of whom I know very well, but I've never heard them talk the way you get them to talk. Um, so I'm kind of a, a crazed fan, I have to admit. Well, thank you. I think what people remember most about his departure from The Tonight Show was that speech he gave on the last show about one of the most incredible moments of, yeah. of my life in television. And, the mo and to be honest with you, which I did not mention, and I'm so glad you're talking about it. The week of shows before he was ending, I would say with all, with no argument, the greatest five shows of late night television, they have to go in the top 50, all five of them. I mean, his monologues were like so unbelievably yeah. funny in that last show, you, you, you don't like, you, you're never inside the sausage factory, you're there. We as viewers, are, now I've been inside, but I wasn't inside that week. And for somebody to show the kind of emotion that he showed, the show kind of, I truly felt 
if he had done shows like those five shows from the very beginning, like they were, like he was performing without a net, those five shows, he knew it was over and he just took every risk and went everywhere and it was the greatest television that anyone could ever see. And maybe, I don't know, I, I just, I was so impressed. And so you're right about that. That was incredible that we... Yeah. I mean, look, I, I guess my final comment about it is I don't think he has any regrets. I don't think he should. I think uh, had he be, been given time, it would have been as much of a national habit as any of the predecessors who hosted that show made it. Um, I agree with that. Underestimating Conan is something people do at their peril. And I think uh, he would have... He would have been able to make it his own, given the time. But, you know, I don't think he looks back. Honestly, in uh, answer to your comment about the truth serum, if he had, uh, if he were awoken in the middle of the night, would he say that he wishes he still hosted The Tonight Show? I really don't think so. I think he loves what he's doing. He's embarked on a whole different chapter in his life. He's doing hilarious stuff, and he's communicating with an audience that he has a connection with that's quite unique in the business. So, you know, I think he's he's a very happy man, and uh, I don't think he has regrets. Um, and just to share, like, uh, I think it's natural to believe that when somebody has a regret that they're not a happy person. And so I, I want to go on the record as saying I don't feel like that's what I wanted to say because we all have regrets. We say to ourselves, please have no regrets, have no regrets. But we all have things that we we think, hey, we could have done this this way or whatever. That doesn't mean we don't live happy lives. You know, uh, I, Letterman, regardless of whether you want to say he's happy or not, I know I have to believe that he wishes that he had gotten The Tonight Show still to this day and to know what that would have looked like. But it didn't happen, and he made the best of the situation he had. And we all look at Letterman in a way that we revere Letterman, including Conan O'Brien reveres Letterman. You know, it's such a fascinating collection of personalities. It's a it's an endless saga, the story of all of these late night hosts. And uh, last week, I don't know if you saw, Craig Ferguson was on Seth Meyers' show, and he made. A hilarious comment, which I think is very insightful and speaks to all of these different situations and how dysfunctional they are. He said, the only thing stranger than being on television every night of the week is wanting to be on television every <laughs> night of the week. Uh, so, you know, it, it does strange things to people, but I'm lucky enough to work with a guy who's kept his humanity and his perspective and is just a great person as well as somebody I'm a huge fan of. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think it's fascinating. You mentioned Craig Ferguson. This is the crazy thing about the business. And I don't know if it's the personalities. I don't know if it's the town. I don't know what it is. 
but NBC and the chair and what's going to happen when you know when when this goes down or that goes down. Maybe it's the way the corporation handles situations. But NBC, every time there's some crazy issue or problem or thing, the public relations thing, and as we're talking, it just occurred to me that. I'm going to backtrack and say that I don't look at anything that Conan did or anything that Jay did or anything that any of those people did at the time in any light that's bad because I look at the corporation itself on how they handled the decisions and how they worked on things. Letterman is retiring. Les Moonves says... You know, literally one week later, Steve Colbert is my host. You don't hear whether Letterman said, hey, I think you should use this person. Steve Colbert is my host. That was vintage less movements. And 1230, hey, Craig, uh, you're gone. This is who I'm going to put in as my host. Yeah. That's my decision. Literally like a ninja. Just in and out, not caring about the thought. Pro maybe he did care. Maybe he met with Letterman, however he did it. But as a as a company man, handled with like literally like precision, you don't hear anybody complaining. Oh, poor Craig Ferguson, he deserved it. He worked for ten years doing. You don't hear Craig Ferguson out saying, "Hey, I got fucked. I got this or what," because things were handled in a way right. like, "Hey, this is what's happening. This is the way it's going down." And no matter what you think about Les Moonves, which it could be argued. Again, this is another thing that's that's truly fascinating, David. Les Moonves chose a man to replace Letterman, who the country doesn't have one frame of footage on as that person. Steve Colbert, even though his name is in the title of his show on Comedy Central, make no mistake about it, he's playing a character. He's playing, he might be a heightened version of himself, but he's playing a true character. So Les Moonves made a decision to put him in that chair, knowing that the country has never seen Steve Colbert as Steve Colbert. But what that says about Les Moonves, which I think is consistent throughout his career, is he understands talent, he believes in talent, and he's willing to place big bets on talent with no equivocating. That was not the situation at NBC back in the period that we're talking about. So I think it's an incredibly stark contrast, and I think that Les will be vindicated with Colbert because he's a great comedy mind and a great performer and a great person and I think ultimately those are the qualities that make you win in the long haul when you're on television every night. Absolutely. That's why you don't see people like you don't see people like let's say Jim Carrey from Ace Ventura in that chair. You need somebody in that chair who's grounded, who's who who you want to be with every day and you want to hang with and and that's that's very important. This has been really wonderful, this section, and I think really uh, learned a lot, not only about myself, but about 
the inside workings of things and you're there and you're there with Conan and and you know from the first moment I met him I just such a great feeling such a brilliant mind so uh it's exciting uh where you are and where you're working we're going to talk a lot a lot about that but what I like to do as you know since you listen I like to go way way back <laughs> way way back to where you grew up what you were doing <laughs> share a little bit with our audience what your family life was like and where your first vision was about getting into this crazy business. It's so funny being asked that question because I can almost <laughs> anticipate having listened. It's like a ritual. The I, formula. I know it's coming, but I, I love it. Um, look, I had a childhood that was alternatively pretty normal. And then, at times, extremely unusual and bizarre. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was very young, and I spent most of my time living in Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb uh, of Boston. And Ironically, Conan was from Brookline. Yeah, we definitely drank from the same water, but... Uh, and I'm from Longmeadow. And uh, so that was... That was the bulk of my time, but then I would go spend summers and vacations with my father, who was uh, working in the Nixon administration and the Ford administration. And for our audience that doesn't realize who his father is now or is too young to remember, uh, David's father, who I just reminded him that in the 20 years of knowing him that I have never, ever brought up anything having to do with the fact that his father is, of course, Henry Kissinger. And I shared with him this off air, and I'll share it with you on air. I just always felt that you were an entity that stood on your own, and you garnered the respect and admiration of myself and everybody and I never ever looked at anybody who was in another profession that was doing well or huge that was in your family I never looked at you in a shadow of anything you were always stood on who you are and who you were well that's very sweet of you to say and I I, 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 I and I even though I, I I don't want to do this at this time I'm going to when I first met Tony Rock he said, what do I need to do to get to the next level? I said, well, normally a comic goes on stage and uh, they have to worry about following like a George Lopez or a Dave Chappelle or a whoever walks in the club that night. But every time you go on stage, you have to follow an act that isn't there, your brother. So until you work harder than your brother, until you put in more hours and give everything you can to figuring out how it is you can get and create work that's extraordinary, that people look at as your own, you're always going to be, oh, that's Chris Rock's brother. But once you start putting content together that blows people away, then when they look at Chris Rock, they'll say, hey, that's Tony Rock's brother and I always looked at you as a person who stood on your own and uh, your work well, stood you. for itself 
Well, fortunately, I'm not a diplomat, so I'm not necessarily having to uh, live up to my father's work. You know, I always had this bug from a very young age. Uh, I was kind of obsessed with the sillier uh, things in life. When I think of your father, I don't think of silly. Oh, he's actually very funny. You know, he has uh, a, a fairly uh, deep and Germanic voice, so it, it often sounds rather serious, but there's a lot of irony and a, a definite uh, awareness of the absurdity of life. And we actually share a lot of the same comedy tastes. I can remember as a kid watching Marx Brothers movies or Danny Kaye movies with him and just laughing our heads off. <laughs> so it, oddly, we we bonded uh, about that. But, you know, I so I, like many kids of my generation, grew up watching a lot of TV. And I remember very early, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show, seeing these comedy writers uh, as characters in the show and thinking, that's a fantastic life. And then the thing that really blew my mind was when I was 12 years old, just turning the dial on the television set and happening upon Monty Python's Flying Circus. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And just knowing nothing would ever be the same for me. It was like an explosion in my brain. Uh, you know, I had already been a huge Beatle fan, so I could sense that there was a, a, a kinship there. Uh, but as soon as I, I saw Monty Python, it was basically uh, an obsession from then on. And uh, so that, that calling... That calling of pursuing something related to comedy and show business was, was there very early. So when you went to Yale, what was your major? <laughs> it was history. I was certainly drawn to the more serious aspects of life and uh, somewhat, I think, it, at times entertaining the idea that, oh, maybe I should follow more in my father's footsteps. So I think that's what my my Yale major in history would tell you. But at the same time, I was uh, writing a lot of silly comedy stuff and 
I was a, an amateur cartoonist, and I was in a lot of shows. I was in uh, Woody Allen's Don't Drink the Water. So I never really gave up that side of uh, myself during those years. So you graduated from Yale, and what's your first entrance into the business? How do you get into the first entry-level job in, in something having to do with the business? Was it the writing? No. Again, I, I wandered pretty far afield from, uh, from the business through much of my 20s. I, I went to law school. I clerked for a judge. That was at NYU, right? Yeah. And again, I was I think I was trying to sort of tamp down that that more uh, creative and, if you will, sort of frivolous side of myself. Uh, and then much to my parents chagrin, I couldn't I couldn't tamp it down anymore. And I quit being a lawyer after about a year and started writing for Rolling Stone. Now, did you quit the law job before you had the gig with Rolling Stone, or did you, on the side, get the job at Rolling Stone and then quit? I, I was freelancing while practicing law, um, but I did actually quit without a net. It was, looking back, and now that I have a son in his 20s, I realize what a kind of perilous course I was on. And I'm so glad that I did it because it, it required that kind of course correction. Um, and I then got very lucky that within a few months, I got a job on staff at Variety. And again, it was sort of kismet. I was... I was... Lucky? I was really lucky. I got... How do you get lucky? Well, I guess by doing the work. <laughs> but... Uh, Variety opened a lot of doors without even it being the plan. All of a sudden, I was able to get top executives on the phone as a reporter, and the thought sort of gelled in my mind, oh my God, what they're doing is a lot more interesting and rewarding and just a, a better long-term career than writing about what they do. So all of a sudden, I was finding myself in a room with a with Brandon Tartikoff or Barry Diller and uh, or Dean Valentine, president of uh, Disney Touchstone Television, and Brandon Tartikoff, obviously the youngest president in history at NBC, and Barry Diller. What can you say about Barry Diller? Again, relationships, because you look at Dean Valentine and Barry Diller, uh, you ended up working with both of those people, and Brandon Tartikoff you would have worked with had he lived. I, I would have loved to. He was definitely one of the big inspirations to, I think, an entire generation of executives. Um, but that opportunity to get to know people at that level enabled me to uh, make the transition to being an executive and Dean was the the guy who really gave me that opportunity uh, which I'm always grateful for and I think he did that because again it goes back to Brandon Tartikoff Brandon had done that for him uh, Dean had been a journalist prior to entering the business and Brandon had sort of spotted him and 
invited him to come to NBC. So Dean did the same thing for me at Disney. It's unbelievable how people pay it forward like that. And uh, I'm curious to know um, if you'll oblige when you're in the positions you've been in. If I know you the way I know you, you've done the same thing. And I'm sure those people are working all over town. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great joys of being in this business when you can help to uh, give that first break to somebody who is talented. Um, and a lot of people I've worked with have gone on to be far more successful than I am. So I'm, I'm let's very not, proud of that. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> but putting a, putting a little pin here in your story, because I, I want to talk about this here because a lot of people listening, they always want to understand the things that it takes, like why somebody gets to the next level and why somebody doesn't. And like you said, there's been people who've worked with you that you have identified that you would go to the mat for to recommend them for a job. And then there's people who you haven't, who probably went home and aren't around anymore. Would you mind like in the middle here, just if you don't if you don't mind mentioning a few names of people who you were proud of along the way, who you believed in, who you weren't afraid to go out on a limb and say, I recommend this person. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, rather than mention names, because I don't want to be, I don't want to forget anybody, but I will say that the big cross people who are obviously in it because they love the work and they love the product of the work and then you run into people who are so kind of transparently ambitious and it's all about the power and it's all about the trappings and I remember even before I worked for him Barry Diller uh, who had become kind of a mentor and a friend even before uh, we crossed paths and worked together, kind of cautioning me that if I was going to become an executive, I needed to make sure that I was not doing it for the trappings, because those are so seductive. I mean, it is this uh, kind of intoxicating environment where very quickly, with very little preparation or qualification, you can <clears throat> be treated like you're important, you know, because you sit in a particular seat uh, and, you know, particularly back in the time when I started when it was a pretty flush time, you know, I was at Disney right in the heyday of home improvement when they were minting money. And for those of you who don't know about the history of Touchstone Television, Disney decided to start a television division. They didn't have a television division. So they started this division, Touchstone Television, and they hired Dean Valentine as the president. And David was there, and I believe Pete Aronson. And Pete and, and came a little later. Came Jordan little, Levin. Jordan Levin, I'm sorry, yeah. who, was, who went on to be the president of the WB. And, uh, and also... Um, Gene Blythe, who uh, was a legendary casting director, was there. And if I am not mistaken, get this, everybody. 
you start a television division and you hope that you go out in your first year of development or whatever it is, maybe you make your mark in some way. If I'm not mistaken, the first television project that went forward that you developed was Home Improvement. And that ended up making, I believe, the company $800 million in the first round of syndication. And for which I can claim absolutely no credit, to be <laughs> honest. I, I showed up right in the afterglow of that. Uh, so I was very lucky. Um, and they deserve a lot of credit. I mean, that's that's the brilliance of Jeffrey Katzenberg and Dean Valentine and that group. Yeah, um, Jeffrey was there before he went on to DreamWorks. Absolutely. So I was then the guy who came straight from Variety, having never had a job in the entertainment business, who was given the ability to spend a lot of the money that uh, Disney had earned from the, the home improvement bonanza, bringing in a, a sort of new wave of writers and trying to develop some new sitcoms um, to kind of ride that wave. And I, I think the, the most notable thing that came of that was Ellen, um, which... Tell me where you first saw Ellen. You know, Ellen had been... Uh, a cast member on a short-lived show that Marlins and Black had done that I believe was called Lori Hill. Of course, Marlins and Black did uh, the uh, a show with uh, Fred Savage and the Wonder Years. They had the uh, the keen eye for talent to recognize that she should have a show of her own. So Ellen's show uh, ran for about six years on ABC and in the course of that time she made the very brave decision to come out uh, which I think goes down in the history of television as a rather historic moment so I remember when Ellen came out in that episode and I believe it was uh, um, there was a writer named Deva Seville? Seville, who wrote that episode with some, I think, alone or with somebody else. Um, it was an amazing... Warren Bell and yeah. Mark Driscoll, yeah. I think. It's an amazing episode. And take me back to, like, when she... Because this is something, again, we're not privy to. When she decides to uh, come out... Does she have a meeting with you and everybody at the touchdown offices and say, listen, this is what I'd like to do? Or do you hear it through the grapevine or what happens? It's hard for people to reconstruct what that was like back then because no television star of her magnitude had ever come out personally. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, 
one-on-one -on -one coaching with me and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Or as a character on the show. So it was a very brave thing, and I do remember the the sense of anxiety that a lot of people had, but there was also a tremendous amount of support. And I remember Ellen just being uh, extremely focused and determined to do it. But it was, it was nerve wracking for her too. There's no doubt about it. And it's wonderful. I, you know, I work on the lot at Warner brothers where she now tapes her talk show and I see what a huge star she is and how that period of her career is now ancient history. And she's just part of the fabric of American life. Um, and her sexuality isn't an issue for anybody. So I, I think she, she's an important figure in pop culture and it's, it's nice to look back and know I was around for that experience. It's all about, I mean, I always feel it's all about the content and what you deliver and no one, no one will care if you deliver great content. I remember the first time I saw the HBO special with Eddie Izzard and here's a guy from the UK, he gets his first HBO special and he's performed in drag and he's performed not in drag. He does whatever he wants, wherever he did in, in, in the UK and sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. He chose to do his HBO special in a dress, high heels, coiffed hair, lipstick, eyeliner, lashes. His first shot at being a star in this country. And he decides, hey, I'm going to roll out like this. Because he was confident in the content of his material. And so it didn't matter in certain areas of this country, that which was homophobic, because once you got past the first five minutes of shock of it and you listened to what he had to say, you were just blown away by it and you never cared. Well, as you know better than most people, there's just no denying a certain level of talent. And, you know, you and I shared some experiences with Dave Chappelle. Seven, I think it was <laughs> seven pilots in eight years. And I just look back on that and I, I feel... So lucky to have spent time around Dave. Uh, but I also feel a lot of remorse that we did not come up with a vehicle worthy of his talents. Um, you know, in my career, to have brushed shoulders with Dave Chappelle, I look back on as just one of the privileges that I've had. I mean, uh, such an incredible talent and such a sweet guy. Um, and obviously his career took some very amazing and then 
very bewildering turns uh, long after I was in his life. But uh, I, I'm so grateful that briefly I was. So you're kicking ass at Disney. You're there. You've never been a television executive in your life. You're not only involved in shows that are just coming into fold like Home Improvement, but then you're in the, involved in the development of Ellen, which proves that, you know, it didn't matter whether you're there for Home Improvement or not. You proved that you could be a part of something and a team that brought something as successful as Ellen to the forefront. Um, what made you decide to move on to the next gig? Like, what happened? What made me decide to move on to the next gig? gig was being fired <laughs> that that has a remarkable uh <laughs> ability to make you decide to move on to the next gig i think i know that feeling when it you is back- a very mercurial business and again i i don't think i should rehash the exact circumstances of my departure from disney but regimes changed and uh it was time for me to go and i was very fortunate that Almost immediately after that, an opportunity arose at Universal to kind of take exactly the same position there and try to grow their comedy department. Television executives are like football coaches. You know, it's like if you do great work and sometimes if things happen, you can get another gig. and, And sometimes like Bill Belichick, even when you don't do extraordinary work, somebody sees something in you and you can get a gig and you can take it to the next level. What I wanted you to, I don't want you to go back to the experience or, or the circumstances, but I think our audience really appreciates these kind of stories. Can you at least take us to the day when that happened and were you like, where did you, did you, did you see anything coming or was it a situation where, Hey, I'm doing great work. Everything's going well. I know when a regime changes, there's people who walk on eggshells cause you don't know if you're going to stay, you're going to go. Um, did, what you at home who uh, can't see what's going on now uh, don't realize is that I have assumed the fetal position <laughs> as I answer this question. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the the exact circumstances, frankly, I can't even sort out to this day. That is what is so uh, important to realize about this business, I think, for young people coming up, is there are things that happen that seem capricious and unpredictable, And even in success, nobody's job is completely safe. And, you know, we had a fair amount of success during that period. We didn't have the grand slam home run. So it's probably, in retrospect, the absence of having generated the next home improvement, the fact that none of those seven Dave Chappelle vehicles turned into a hit uh, that led to my departure from Disney. But, you know, what is, I think what I value and draw from those kinds of transitions is that they teach you something about yourself and your ability to persevere and draw on some kind of inner strength and love for the work that leads you to the next thing. So, I think that becomes a its own kind of self-fulfilling 
um, energy. And again, I, I consider myself having been very lucky to have been given an opportunity to move on to the next thing. I would not, I think, have been able to uh, get to the level I got had I not left Disney voluntarily or not, because <clears throat> being a universal, that was a company that was in a very fluid situation when I arrived. It was owned by Seagram's. And then within months of my arriving, just by chance, Barry Diller acquired all of the television assets. And so I was kind of reunited with someone I had already gotten to know and admired tremendously and had, I think, some reciprocal um, goodwill from. And so that led, within a couple of years, to my being given the opportunity to be the president of a studio um, in a very dynamic period for that studio. It was hugely uh, dynamic, and you were there during that whole time. Well, first of all, I I should just say, for those of you who don't know much about Barry Diller, he is one of the most charismatic and interesting personalities I've ever come across. You know, if anyone knows something about the history of Hollywood. He is right in that tradition of the larger-than-life mogul. He is, in in many ways, the paradigm of that character. If you talk to many of the people who worked for him over the years, and, and many of those people went on to being giants in the business themselves, whether it's Michael Eisner or Peter Chernin, they will tell you that they learned so much about how to do it from Barry Diller. And he is a character. I, I like to say that he's a combination of Noel Coward and Genghis Khan <laughs> because he's elegant and witty and pithy, but he is also unstoppable and he can be brutal and his management style is to test everybody's convictions at all times. So working <clears throat> working for him is always an adventure. And uh, so looking back on the universal period, any success that we had was largely due to his example and leadership. But uh, specifically, the first great asset that we had that we were able to work with was the Law & Order franchise. And Dick Wolf, who's another larger-than-life personality... Uh, the creator of the franchise. Who also is that rare creative talent who has an entrepreneurial and business mind. And he was determined to spin off the show. Um, and the first vehicle that he came up with was Law and Order Special Victims Unit. But he knew that his intention was always to have at least three. Um, and it was a rare period over that five years that he successfully launched two enormously successful spinoffs. I think at one time, all three of them were in the top 10. 
And they were incredibly well written and executed week after week. So being uh, a part of that and getting to work with Dick and uh, seeing just the uh, sort of P.T. Barnum skill that he has in juggling all of those different elements was pretty exhilarating. Um, the other great shows that you've already mentioned that came out of that period were Monk and House and Battlestar Galactica. Let's go to Monk for a second. When you're developing that project, if I'm not mistaken, you're developing it as a written project and you were looking for somebody to cast in the role. And so, which is which is unusual from what it was in the past for you at Disney, where Home Improvement was was a show that was written after the talent was put in. Ellen was written after the talent was placed. So you, know, you have I a situation think... here where you have you're in a different situation where you're working with Dick Wolf. You're not a, it, the talent that was involved in those shows, obviously very important, but they were cast. And, and here you have another situation where you're reversing. So what's the difference in developing as a television executive when you're taking a talent and saying, hey, I like their voice. Let's find some writers and showrunners to write for them versus taking a creative talent like Dick Wolf and saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. Well, you're not going to say Dick, Dick Wolf, this is what I want you to do, but Dick, what do you have? And then let's bring this forward and cast it like uh, the same with Monk. Talk about how Tony Shalhoub ended up there and talk about maybe some people who came very close to getting that gig but didn't get it. Well, it's a very uh, windy road that led to Tony Shalhoub being the star of Monk. In fact, Monk was originally developed at ABC. I think Steve McPherson has talked about this on your podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, the person, the single person who deserves a lot of credit for spearheading Monk is uh, an executive who's still at the USA Network named Jackie DeCrinis. Um And she previously had been at ABC, I believe, and brought it over to USA when she came there. And I think that Andy Breckman originally designed the role of Monk for Michael Richards. Michael Richards. That would have been a very different show. <laughs> uh, could have worked. I'm not sure. Uh, and in fact, now this is a, a cautionary tale to actors. An actor who will remain nameless was cast in the USA pilot of Monk and was kind enough to come in to read with other actors who were auditioning who hadn't been cast yet. And he did this as a favor. And I remember sitting with Doug Herzog and Jeff Wachtel. Doug Herzog, who's now the uh, overseas as uh, the president of Viacom Entertainment Group, who was my first guest on the show, and Jeff Wachtel, who's the president of um, uh, what is USA, it? Cable. USA Cable. And we were... Reportedly, we were there to evaluate these people who are auditioning for the supporting roles. But what became very clear as this actor read with these people who are auditioning was he wasn't right for the show. So in doing us that favor, 
he sealed his own fate, which is uh, very sad. But the show would not have been the the hit that it became had we stuck with him. And then we just had the good fortune that Tony Shalhoub became available, read the script, and wanted to do it. And it is one of those moments where a role and an actor meet and something very special happens. And if that actor who had been reading with the other actors was a thousand percent prepared and really did the research into what the role was and what people wanted, he probably would be still there. But sometimes people go again with that sense of entitlement thinking, hey, I've got the gig. What can happen? Well, I can tell you a, a story about House that is kind of the other side of the coin, which is Hugh Laurie obviously was already an iconic comedy star and had done so much great work uh, when he came into audition for the role of Gregory House. But he was not a slam dunk in anybody's mind. And in fact, the thing that probably was the greatest strike against him was that character was such a kind of devilish and such a, a rebellious character. And in terms of his American work, what Hugh Laurie was best known for was playing the very kind of mousy dad in the film Stuart Little, which showed none of the sort of bad boy attributes that the house role required. And I probably, more than many people involved with the project, was skeptical whether he could bring that quality. And he probably had heard about some of the skepticism. I remember he came into the audition room with a little pin on his lapel that said sexy (laughs) (laughs) and just that little subliminal message never mind that he gave an unbelievably brilliant audition but the fact that he anticipated that concern and sort of threw in this little subversive message uh, showed that he took nothing for granted and of course that's another show that would not have been as great without the luck of the casting. So great. And um, let's move on. So you're doing great there. Everything's going well. Yet. <laughs> well, you move on. What happens there? <laughs> that's an example. He's, he's where... in the fetal position again. <laughs> I <folks>. am. <laughs> Tears streaming down my face. Did you get fired again? I did. I mean, look, that is a, a period God, where... it's so great to sit across from a guy who actually has experienced the kind of things that I've experienced. This is exciting. I mean, I, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And I truly feel that uh, each time I've kind of been forced to move on in my career, it's led to a n- new chapter that's more fulfilling. Now, did you did you did you feel that one coming or it just was a complete shock? Oh, I completely felt that one coming. I mean there's no mystery about what happened there. That was a new uh owner who wanted to put in his own people. I mean that's as old as time. So there was no ambiguity and there was absolutely no uh precipitating 
cause. You know, I can look back at Disney and say, okay, we didn't fully deliver in that period. But I look back on that last year that I was running NBC Universal jointly with Angela Bromstad, who's a terrific person. And uh, prior to sharing the management of the studio, we had four huge hits. We had House, we had The Office. Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica and Monk uh, in, you know, four very different kinds of shows that each in its way uh, were huge assets for NBC Universal. So, you know, I look back on that when the chips were down and virtually everyone on my team knew that it was probably going to be their last few months at that company the level of work that was done was so terrific um you know there is something liberating about knowing that you're just in it for the work and uh the politics are going to resolve themselves how they resolve themselves but that opened the door to being able to work with somebody who i had admired and known vaguely but uh, had always had an instinct would be sort of a fantastic partner if I ever went into producing, and that's Conan O'Brien. And, and take us through that phone call or how that happened. You know, it goes back to the theme that you often bring up in this podcast, which is relationships and it's funny, I've been meaning to tell you that uh, one of Barry Diller's mantras is it's not about relationships. He's a a firm believer that success in the business is ultimately about editorial choices and it's about picking great material and picking great people. But be that as it may, you know, that's an no, abstract I've, debate I've, that I've people always, can have. I've always thought about that because I know that, that he said that, and I've never addressed it. And um, do you think he really believes that there aren't some things that have happened in his career that have been tremendous based on a relationship that he had? Well, I'm too afraid to speak for Barry Diller on the <laughs> off chance that he listens to this podcast. David is in the fetal position again for the third time. <laughs> I'm not going to venture to uh, speak for him, but uh, I would say having spent years around him that no, he would, he would insist it is not about relationships. Be that as it may. I mean, I think that's kind of an endless and maybe just a semantic debate. I certainly have benefited and am very lucky to have long-standing relationships with incredibly talented people who have helped me throughout my career. And a lot of those people uh, were very instrumental in introducing me to Conan and kind of speaking to him on my behalf. So, that first, that first meeting must have been fascinating. Yeah, I mean, again, you know how sometimes you meet someone and you just know there's a kindred spirit. And maybe it is having grown up in the adjacent town to him. I think we had a lot of shared tastes and loves. He's 
also a beetle maniac, also a Monty Python maniac. He's an incredible student of history, far more knowledgeable about it than I am. And uh, so it was kind of a, a good connection from the start. And it's, I've so enjoyed working for him all these years. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.